Hey, it's Adam. Welcome to our weekly teaching podcast here at South Hills Church in Corona, California. Our hope is that as you listen in, you'll find yourself laughing and learning and being challenged and encouraged to grab hold of who God has made you to be. Enjoy the message. taking notes the title of my message today is kingdoms and casualties kingdoms and casualties uh just a little while ago i was out to dinner with a bunch of friends and it was like this milestone moment in uh one of my friends lives and so they were like hey let's all go out together and so i got there and there's like a bunch of people and some of them i knew a lot of the people that were there but they didn't all know each other and we were sort of all connected through this one person who was celebrating this kind of like moment from transitioning from this to this and they're really excited about this new season of their life and we're all kind of eating and trying to get to know each other and all this sort of stuff, which is already kind of like tough, right? When you're in a group of people that you don't entirely know everybody and you're trying to figure it out and um, you're trying to stick to the people that are like your security blanket people uh, because you know them and you're comfortable with them and uh, the conversation sort of hit a lull and it was one of these restaurants that have like all the TVs on the wall and on one of the TVs, uh, the, the Barbie movie trailer came on. And uh, you could tell because it was just like a hot pink glow, you know what I mean, from this whole wall. And as the movie popped up and, um, you know, the, it started playing, um, you know, one person as it was kind of, because it kind of got quiet at the table just because there was like people were running out of things to talk about, we were eating. And somebody looked up and like, and like pointed at the TV and just sort of mumbled, but like it was like loud enough to where everybody could hear it. They were just like woke feminist BS. This is why we need Trump back because like everything is becoming wussified in our entire nation. And they said it like really confidently, like they assumed that everybody around the room was automatically going to agree with them. And you could see that some people did because some people were like sort of nodding. Um, but there was this sense that immediately this one thing that this one person said that everyone could kind of hear just started dividing the room. And, and there was this like uncomfortability where some people were nodding and some people were like got visibly uncomfortable. Some people refused to make eye contact. Some people were pretending like they just got a text like, oh, you know, just sort of fiddling with their phone to avoid what was happening in front of them. And it was like this tension took over the entire table and you could feel it. And, you know, one person uh, sort of was like, well, was there anything that you, you know, liked about the movie? And they were like, oh, I haven't actually seen it. Um, and then, like, the table got quiet again, and somebody from the other side then muttered, again, loud enough to where everyone could hear it, they muttered, like, narrow-minded, conservative idiot. And, like, I'm not a big confrontation person, so I immediately felt like I was going to get diarrhea. Um, <laughs> I was just like, oh, I don't like this. I don't, what is happening, right? Because it almost felt like I got lured into a battleground against my will because initially someone was just like, hey, you want to come to this thing and celebrate with me about this thing happening in my life? And it was like, yes, of course I do. I love you. And I'm there. And then midway through appetizers, I'm just like, are people going to kill each other? Is this going to get weird? I don't know what's going to happen. I feel sick to my stomach. I'm sweating in weird places. I didn't know sweat could come from. I don't want to be here right now. I don't like this. And of course, because all the people didn't know each other, but a lot of them knew me. And because they know me to be a pastor, everyone's sort of looking at me like, okay, well, which side are you on? Okay. 
what are you going to do? You know, because essentially what they're wanting to know is like, what side are you on? AKA what side is God on? Because obviously he's on our side and we need you to decide which side of the room is heavenly and which side of the room is hellish. And that's where I was just like, now I faked like I had a text message, right? And I was just like, oh man, I, got, I should take this, you know? And I just left. I just left. No, I didn't leave. I wanted to. That was in my heart to do. And man, even as I'm telling this, how many of you like in your own stomach, your stomach is getting like uh, uncomfortable and you're like, oh, mm, I shouldn't have come today. Oh man, I'm feeling weird already. And I think the reason why stories like this stir stuff up in us is because this is not like a story that I've experienced. This is a story that you've experienced. You've been through this moment probably more times than you can count, definitely more times than you want to. And, you know, with some people where these sort of conversations spring into reality in the midst of nothing, you saw it coming. You're like, okay, yeah, I get it with that person. They're probably going to bring this up. But other times it completely caught you off guard. Everything was fine, and then the second the conversation sort of drifted toward this one topic, there was somebody at the table in that environment, their whole demeanor, their posture, their tone changed. They went from friendly to fiery, like in a hurry, and they just started lecturing everyone at the table on something. And you're like, whew, this is like a deep thing for you. I've never heard you talk about it before, but apparently this is like the biggest issue of your entire existence. And you started clamming up and you felt in that moment sort of blindsided and maybe even bulldozed. Like they were accusing you of something and like they were assuming that you were or thought a certain way that maybe did or didn't have anything to do with you. And it just got weird. And you walked away from that exchange just wondering, like, what just happened in there? Like, what, what just took place? Like, I, I don't even know. Like, I, where did that even come from? And who even are those people? Because sometimes after exchanges like this, you have this sense, like, I thought I knew who I was hanging out with. And then afterwards, now I'm not so sure if I know the people I'm spending my time with. And if this has happened to you, and I'm guessing it has, it is a dizzying experience. By now, we've all had it more times than we would ever want. In, in 2020, uh, it unleashed a lot of uncertainty in all of our lives. It was something that none of us had ever experienced before. It was a pandemic that produced lockdowns that spawned an economic shutdown amidst heightened social unrest during an election year. Just saying that, I mean, it was a lot. It was a lot happening all at the same time. And all that uncertainty that sort of exploded at the same exact time surfaced things in us and those around us that we had previously been able to ignore. And I say surface because uncertainty doesn't really rearrange your value system, it reveals it. Like when you don't know what's gonna happen, you sort of downsize to the essentials of what really matters to you. Not what you pretend matters, but what really matters. It forces you to admit uh, what you actually care about, what you're actually afraid of, what you're actually focused on, as opposed to maybe what you wish that you cared about or what you were pretending was important to you. 
And for some of us in the midst of all that turmoil, we had hoped that maybe the thing that would top the list of the things that were most important to the people closest to us would be, you know, us. But in some cases, we realized that it wasn't, that their opinions were. And I think we all had these moments where we realized that we knew people who were willing to torture relationship to prove a point. And we had these exchanges, whether they were in person or online, where somebody ridiculed, insulted, and demeaned you because they didn't see something like you. Their perspective was more important than any one person, which stung because in that moment, you were the person. And you couldn't believe how quickly and callously they dismissed you despite the history that they'd had with you. And maybe like me in the midst of some of these moments, you found yourself baffled just being like, what, what just happened? I thought the fact that we were family meant something. I, I thought the fact that, um, you know, we've been friends since the sixth grade was significant enough to sort of like give us more than just a quick Facebook exchange to just decide that we were gonna sever ties. I thought serving together at the same church for the last several years was enough to sort of solidify and strengthen our relationship that it could like last beyond one single difference of political opinion. But you realize that, that it wasn't. And part of the reason why I think a series like this is necessary is that, like, how many of us, if we're honest, how many of us have lost friends, left jobs, or are no longer on speaking terms with family because of something we can't agree on politically? All of us? Like, at least one of these things is true about us, maybe all three at the same time. And yet what is crazy is, despite the devastating relational fallout that we've experienced, everyone is still, for the most part, sticking to their guns. Because the thought that we have is we have to. And the reason we have to is that that other political party, right, that policy, that perspective, that person is clearly out to destroy every single thing we value. That other side doesn't care about you. They don't care about your family. They don't care about your values. They don't care about America, which is why we've got to fight Okay, we've got to fight. Like, we've got to gather up all of our righteous anger and aggression and aim it at every person who doesn't agree with us. Because if we don't win, all is lost. Our faith, our hope, our rights, our future. And so we went to war. In many cases with our own families, our longtime friends, our immediate neighbors, we had to. And the reason we had to is because we're right. I think we live in a time where a lot of Christians are more interested in defending their views than loving their neighbors. And as a result of this, there have been so many casualties in our culture war with wounds that don't seem to heal because the arguments never seem to end. It's like there is a political powder keg waiting to detonate inside of every casual conversation that you could just be celebrating someone's job promotion or the fact that they moved into their first apartment and it could explode because of a TV commercial into we are never gonna talk to these people again. We live in a time where there is no neutral topics or people anymore. Everything is politicized and it is 
sort of reduced down to something that will fit into one of two buckets, a, a red one and a blue one. And the idea is if you don't completely agree with me, you're against me. And so I think all of us walk around with this nervousness, feeling like we are always on the verge of someone that we thought we knew canceling you because of what they think you think. Whether that's really what you think or not, because it really doesn't matter anymore. As long as they can hang something on one thing you said or did, they have completely sized you up. And I think it's easy for all of us to fall into this trap. And I'm not just picking on Christians here. I mean, I think everyone does this, which is weird, right? That there's not really any difference between the way that Christians handle politics and the way non-Christians handle politics. Is that okay? Like, shouldn't Christians be different? Shouldn't followers of Jesus disagree differently, debate differently, defend their beliefs differently? The Apostle Paul, who wrote the majority of the New Testament, actually seemed to think so. Um, in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 3, he writes this very famous line. He says this, Though we, talking to people who follow Jesus, though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. Although, like, when I read this, I'm like, <laughs> we kind of do. <laughs> I don't know if you have that thought, right? Paul, I don't know if you know what you're talking about. <laughs> because we look around at our society and we think, like, okay, well, if this is what we're supposed to do, what we're supposed to do doesn't really match what we actually do. And here's what I found. Like, as you dig deeper into this verse, like, the more English translations you read the crossover of this verse in, the more convicting it feels. Let me just give you some really uncomfortable examples. Another translation, the CEV says, we live in this world, but we don't act like the rest of its people. The CEB version says, we live in this world, but we don't fight our battles with human methods. The GNT says, we live in this world, but we don't fight from the same worldly motives. The ICB, which just so you know, is the International Children's Bible, says, we do live in the world, but we do not fight the same way the world fights. So just to recap, according to a kid's Bible, a lot of us who call ourselves Christians aren't acting like Christ because we're behaving just as immature, childish, and cartoonish as everyone else is. Where is Paul getting this assumption anyway? It's from something that Jesus said. In Matthew chapter 20, verse 25, Jesus is talking to his followers, his immediately, immediate disciples, about how the world works and how he wants his followers, those who are allegiant to him, uh, to be. And he makes this statement. He says, you know, rulers in this world lord, uh, lord it over people. And officials flaunt their authority over those that are under them. In other words, Jesus is saying, like, you guys know how the world works. I mean, you can look around. Um, really, the world has always sort of worked according to one thing. It revolves around one thing. And that thing is power, right? Power is what everyone is after. This is what makes the world go round doing whatever it takes to get it, to keep it, and to leverage it to benefit you and your belief system. 
This is how the world works. And you guys see this. You can look around and see how everything functions. And Jesus' followers would have been thinking like, I know. It's super annoying. I, Jesus, I hate it when the other side does this kind of thing. <laughs> They're such bad people. Uh, but our side is different, okay, because we have good intentions. And what makes us different from the, the other people in the other party is that um, we're right. Uh, so when we get power, Jesus, you just need to understand that when we get power, it's okay for us to use that power to put people in their place and make them do what we think they should do because the big difference between us and them is that they're wrong and we're right. Some of you are like, wow, followers of Jesus really haven't changed much. This is what we're still thinking a lot of the time. But Jesus continues on. And this is what he says next. Matthew chapter 20, verse 26. He says, but among you, it will be different. Whoever wants to be a leader among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first among you must become your slave. This is a moment where pretty much everybody who's listening are like, so I'm, I don't know if I want to be a part of this movement anymore. <laughs> this is not what I thought it was going to be about. That's not what I thought you were going to say. Because that's the twist. According to Jesus, who is the one that we follow, what was going to be different about the followers of Jesus wasn't just what they were fighting for, but the way they fought for it. And Jesus is telling his followers, if you're gonna be allegiant to what I'm doing and what my movement is, when you have power, you're gonna serve. Humbly. And when you don't have power, this is the twist, you're gonna serve. Humbly. And what Jesus is trying to communicate here that we often miss is the method of our Savior is every bit as important as the message of our Savior. And that method is humble, sacrificial, servant-hearted love. And the people then that Jesus is teaching this to originally were just as confused and frustrated by this as we are now. They're thinking probably the same thing that you're thinking right now. I don't get it. How do you wage war with humility? Sacrifice. Service, love. <laughs> I mean, that's what losers do, Jesus, just FYI. And we can't lose because there's too much at stake. Our nation, our rights, our children, our future, our faith. And I mean, obviously, I don't want to do anything that's shady or underhanded, you know, to win. But, you know, the ends justify the means sometimes. And, and also the other side is demonstrated that they're willing to pretty much stoop as low as they can to do whatever it takes to win. And the only way to beat them is, you know, to actually outsmart them at their own game. But Jesus is telling his followers to do the opposite of their impulses. The opposite of what they see everyone else doing the entire rest of the world doing, even though what other people are doing seems to be working. Why would he tell them that? Like, you know what they were thinking? Like, 
I see what you're saying, Jesus, but like how, how is this gonna help us accomplish our personal political goals <laughs> doing that? And part of Jesus' point was that, you know, if the way of Jesus doesn't help you reach your political goals, you and he may have different political goals. And a lot of people, no matter what side they were on, no matter what nation they were a part of, all, almost all of them have had sort of the same political goals. The early follower of Jesus wanted to take, maintain, and leverage power over their kingdom, which was Rome. And a lot of current or modern day Christians want to take, maintain, and leverage power over our kingdom, which is America. But here's the thing that we often miss when we read the story of Jesus. Jesus did not come to take over our earthly kingdoms. He came to establish an entirely different kind of kingdom. And in fact, his early followers thought like, that's cool and we want you to be our king, but we don't wanna have to like live by the parameters of your kingdom. Is it possible to kind of do both at the same time? And this is not the first time this happened because um, in the Old Testament, this same issue comes up before. The Israelite people actually say the same and respond the same exact way because this is sort of the way that human beings are. In 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 5 and 20, it says this. They're, they're saying to, um, to their, their preacher, they're like, give us a king like all the other nations have and our king will judge us and lead us into battle. That's what we want. In other words, here's what they were actually saying. Like, God, we don't want to trust you and your ways. We want a strong leader who won't allow us to be pushed around because they're going to be the ones doing all the pushing, who will force other people to hear us and respect us and fear us and obey us and fall in line with us, who fights just like everybody else fights, except they're stronger and it's okay because they're fighting on our behalf. And we want that because we want what everyone else wants. We want to win. But God's kingdom, ruled by his chosen king, Jesus, is defined by humble, sacrificial, servant-hearted love. And its symbol is a cross, not a sword. Here's how the apostle Paul described what it means to be a part of God's kingdom and see Jesus as our king. In Philippians chapter two, verse five, it says this, you must have the same attitude as Christ Jesus. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. In other words, if you feel like this feels like a lot of Jesus to ask of you as his followers, Jesus is only asking you to do what he already did. Because when Jesus was here on earth, he had all the power, all the authority, all the truth, but instead of steamrolling anyone with it, he leveraged it to serve the other side and laid down his life for those who didn't like or agree with him. 
In other words, Jesus allowed himself to look like he'd lost in order to lovingly reach the lost. And this kind of living came to define the early church, which, just so you know, existed in a much more politically contentious environment than ours. The Apostle Paul described following Jesus this way in his own life. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 19. He says, even though I'm a free man, I've chosen to be a slave to all people to bring many to Christ. In other words, what he's saying is humble, sacrificial service over condescending, self-serving demands. Paul is saying that like, his understanding of what it is to follow Jesus well in this life is to choose this way, Jesus' way, over every other way. Is to choose this method, Jesus' method, over every other method. Is to choose this kingdom, the kingdom of God, over every other kingdom. Is to choose this king, King Jesus, over every other king, every other political system, every other political leader. And Paul understands what this would look like because he straddled two kingdoms, but he understands that only one can truly take priority. Only one king can receive his absolute loyalty. In fact, Jesus says it this way. You've probably heard this before. Matthew chapter six, verse 24, Jesus says, no one can serve two masters. You will hate one and love the other, be devoted to one, and despise the other. And what he's getting at here is that all priorities eventually clash. And here's the question I think we all have to wrestle with. When your priorities inevitably clash, which one wins? Like, for example, when your party conflicts with your savior, who wins? When your candidate of choice, the one that you like the best, because you don't really like all the choices, but at least this one's okay. When your candidate behaves contrary to your faith, who wins? When your desire to prove that you're right clashes with your calling to live in right relationship with the people around you, what wins? And the issue here is not patriotism, it's priority. It's saying you can love God and country, but which do you love more? Which do you have a bigger allegiance to? I don't know if you're like me, but I grew up in the 80s and when I was a kid, we had to say the Pledge of Allegiance in class. And so I memorized it and there's this one line that says, one nation under God. And I love this line because this is the proper order. God first, nation second, or third or fourth or fifth. But God inarguably goes first. And I think some of us unintentionally have allowed this sort of to flip one God under nation. 
The nation and defending the nation and fighting for the nation is what comes first. And actually upholding who Jesus is, what Jesus said, and the way Jesus told us to live comes a distant second. I think like the people in the Old Testament, we like the idea of God as our king. We like his message, but we don't know if we can trust his methods. But what, what, what if God actually has some different goals than you do? What if God is convinced that he can actually win the world even if he loses an election? Here's the question I think we have to start with. Are you willing to prioritize your faith over your politics? Are you willing to actually put God first and to listen to what God says through his son, Jesus? And if that conflicts with the stand you've already taken, being willing to let your stand fall to second place because Jesus always gets first place. Now, if you are not willing to do this, I just got to tell you, like, you're welcome to come to the rest of the series, but um, it really doesn't matter what Jesus or Paul say because you don't really need to read your Bible. You just need to, like, tune in to the right news broadcast. It's really irrelevant at that point. But the reality is following Jesus isn't about him supporting your way, but you submitting to his. Because the truth of the matter is, if Jesus is sitting at a table in which everybody's arguing about different perspectives and wanting to know which side is Jesus on, the reality of it is Jesus isn't on any one person's side. He's on the side of humanity. The question is, are we willing to side with him? And siding with Jesus means that we're always willing to lay down our lives for one another. Is that something you're even willing to do? Like, let me get like real personal with it. Like, are you willing to embrace the other's first ethic of the kingdom of God, even when it requires you to keep your mouth shut and keep your opinion to yourself in a given moment? Are you willing to serve first rather than cancel or complain? Are you willing to love someone you disagree with as opposed to just demonize them? Are you willing to actually spend time playing, praying that God would bless someone instead of just boycotting them or blasting them online? And if you're not, if, if that feels like too passive or progressive, I gotta tell you, it may be a sign that you have elevated your politics above your faith. That your king is your party, not your savior. And so here's my challenge to you. My challenge to me is to this week, ask yourself, is Jesus just the forgiver of my sins? or is he the king of my life? Do I just embrace him like, God, forgive me of my sins, help me to go to heaven, and then I'm pretty much just gonna do whatever I wanna do according to what I feel like is right for my nation?
Or is Jesus ultimately my king and I bow to him first? Because to be a Christian means your ultimate allegiance is to a king that came to reverse the order of things, who instead of requiring his subjects to die for him, he died for them instead. And then he encouraged all of his followers to do the same. Especially for those that they disagree with. And it's when we take up our cross that we look most like our king. And I'll tell you, so few people actually do this that when you do, you will stand out. You're supposed to. Because Jesus says, with us, his followers, it ought to be different. People ought to know that we are followers of Jesus, not just because of what we take a stand on, but by the way we take a stand through humble, sacrificial, servant-hearted love. Does that describe you? If not, and you claim to be a Jesus follower, regardless of which party you associate with, you've got some work to do. Because Jesus didn't just come to stay segmented in one piece of your life so you could do whatever you want to in the others. Jesus came not just to forgive you of your sins, but to become the king of how you live your everyday life. And that always means how you treat and talk to other people. And I wanna pray this into your life today. Here's what I think. This message is not just for somebody else. Although I hope you forward it to them. I hope they get something out of it. This message is for all of us because I think the most difficult thing is for us to look in the mirror and admit to ourselves that there are certain preferences and certain positions that we would rather elevate over the way of Jesus. And that means when we look in the mirror, we need God to help us be more like him, not just tell somebody else they're not like him. And that's what I hope you take from this today as we prepare to dive in the rest of the way. Some of you are like, there's three more weeks of this? <laughs> this is just the foundation. But I wanna pray that God would begin to do the work in your heart to ready you for what he wants to speak to you and how he wants to change the world through you. Would you bow your heads across this room as we pray together? God, I am grateful for your love, your grace, your mercy in each of our lives. God, we are grateful that even though you have all the power, you have all the knowledge, all the truth, all the authority, that when you entered into humanity, you chose to serve. It's not the way the rest of the world does anything. It's not the way any political party operates. But God, we are called to be different. And God, I pray that we would prioritize who you are, your words, and your way over everything else, over every perception, over every politician, over every preference. God, that we would look to you and God, that we would align our lives with what you say is best. 
that we would truly embrace you as our king. And God, as we serve you, we would begin to see evidence of you moving in the world, of your heavenly kingdom expanding. And regardless of what happens with earthly kingdoms, God, may we see your fingerprints all over our lives, our family, our community. It's when we prioritize you over everything else that things truly change. That the world begins to look more like you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thanks for tuning in to this week's message. We hope you heard something that spoke directly to where you're at right now in life. To find out more about our church, hit up our website, southhills.org slash corona, or follow us on social media at South Hills Corona. And if our messages have made a difference in your life, help us get the word out by rating and reviewing this podcast. And as always, you can support the ongoing work of our church by giving through our website at southhills.org slash give and selecting the Corona Campus. Thank you so much for listening, and we hope you'll join us again next week. God bless.